Our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we invoke your presence here this morning. You've told us that wherever two or three are gathered, that you are in your name, that you are in the midst. And Father, we are here in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we desire to fellowship together around the word of God. And we pray, Lord, that your word will be strong and powerful in our midst today. And that as we study it, we will be strengthened, we'll be challenged, our lives will be directed. We need, Lord, to know the wisdom of God in each step we make. And as we look at the individuals who have lived through the past several thousand years and how you've touched their lives, this gives us understanding of the way in which you'd have us to live. And so, guide us, I pray, this morning. Meet each need here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to read beginning with Genesis chapter 11, verse 26. Genesis 11:26. And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. And Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. And Sarai was barren, she had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sari, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. It seems that the real point of the genealogy here is to show the linkage between Shem and Abraham. This brings us down as we come through the, 11, the latter part of the 11th chapter. We come from Shem down to Abraham and we see this, this linkage. And of course the linkage can be traced all the way back to Noah and then to the other side of the flood all the way back to Adam. It's interesting as we have studied these first chapters of the book of Genesis that we discover a lot of information is given to us about Noah. A whole lot more is given to us about Abraham. Very little is given to us about the nine generations between Noah and Abraham. Shem through Terah. And as we study these next chapters of the book of Genesis, we're going to discover that a great deal of space is given to Abraham. In fact, more space is dedicated in the book of Genesis to the last 100 years of the life of Abraham than to the whole of history up to Abraham as we have it recorded in Scripture. In other words, from Adam through about Abraham's 75th birthday, we have less space than is given to the last 100 years of the life of Abraham. I think from this it's quite clear that it's pretty difficult to overestimate the importance of Abraham in the story of redemption. 
God gives us these first chapters of Genesis to give us a glimpse into what happened and to why redemption was needed. But then the story of redemption itself is the point of Scripture. And so beginning with Abraham, God expands the detail so that we might understand to the smallest point what redemption is about and why it is needed. This particular passage we read this morning, the latter verses of chapter 11, give us some important background information about Abraham. First of all, we discover that his father Terah was about 70 years old before he fathered the three sons listed here, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, you remember last week we noted that in the generations from Shem up to Terah, it was very common for the man that's listed there to have his first son, or at least the first son named, when he was in his 30s. And suddenly Terah now is 70, double the average. What does that mean? Well, I don't know that we can determine uh, that it means anything in particular uh, other than the fact that we may be looking at a neglect of others born. In other words, others may have been born to Terah before these three, but they're not important to the narrative, and so they're not mentioned. And so simply we're told when Abraham, uh, Nahor, and Haran are born, because they are significant to the, to the narrative and to the background of the Hebrew nation. Secondly, many have felt that Abraham is the uh, oldest of these three brothers. And of course, he is listed first, Abram, Nahor, Haran. And often in Scripture, the birth order is given, but it is not necessarily the birth order that you find in Scripture. There's no way to prove that Abraham is the oldest, no way to confirm it, but it is generally assumed that he is the eldest of the three brothers. Probably more importantly is to look a little bit at Abram's background geographically. We're told that he was, that he was living in, in Ur, the city of Ur. Now, the city of Ur is on your map. It's way down in the southern part of Mesopotamia just south of the Euphrates River. Ur of the Chaldees. Now the Chaldeans were a Semitic people who came to dominate ancient Babylon many, many generations and centuries even after the time that we are speaking of. But apparently there were Chaldeans in the area at the time. And so when Moses writes the narrative as he is inspired by God, he calls it Ur of the Chaldeans. Today, if modern historians were naming it, they would call it Ur of Sumer because that was the nation, that was the culture in which Ur was located. But obviously Chaldeans played an important role within that culture in some way. The time frame is approximately 2000 B.C., about four millennia ago. It's kind of interesting, this is kind of off the track a little bit, but some of you are, are familiar with the fact that over in the White Mountains that are on the border between California and Nevada, you have a large stand of what are known as bristlecone pines. 
And they have been considered to be the oldest uh, living creatures on the planet. And some of those bristlecone pines exceed 4,000 years, even 5,000 years in age. And you think about that, that that one of those pines could have been a small little pine tree when Abraham, Abraham was making his journey. You know, it kind of brings the history of human civilization down really quickly. So that you can actually look at a tree living today that was alive at a time that seems so, so long ago to us, 4,000 years ago. Ur was the capital of a kingdom that had been established in southern Mesopotamia known as the Third Dynasty of Ur. It was a kingdom that was short-lived. It lasted 100 to 120 years, somewhere in there. It was sort of the last fling of the Sumerian culture. And that's the city, the capital of that empire in which Abraham lived at the time that the call came from God. It is interesting that the city of Ur had as its focus a great ziggurat that had been built there to honor the patron goddess of the city, which was the moon goddess Nana, N-A-N-N-A. And what's interesting about it is, as we're going to see a little bit later on, Scripture tells us that Terah was a, a, an idolater that he worshipped other gods. In fact, some feel that the name Terah in some way is derivative from the name Nana. And therefore, he was in, in some way named after the moon goddess. And when they move to Haran, they're moving to another city which also worships the moon. So it's kind of interesting, this, these interconnections here uh, relative to idolatry. Fourthly, we discover Abram's brother, Haran, is thought to be, have been the youngest of the three. He's listed last. And so many would assume he must have been the youngest of the three. But when you look at the facts, it's not quite so certain because we discover he is the first to die. Well, that, that doesn't necessarily mean he couldn't have been the youngest, obviously. But we also discover he was the first to have children. That's not impossible either, but a little less likely. On top of that, we discover that his daughter married his brother, who, according to the list, should have been his older brother, Nahor. So when his older brother marries his daughter, it sort of makes it seem like maybe Haran wasn't the youngest brother. Now, some might look at this and say, well, it says when, Her when Terah lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, Haran, that they were triplets. Well, that's a possibility. But most commentators don't feel that that's required at all here. It's just that Terah lived to be approximately 70 before these particular sons were born, probably uh, you know, one, two, three years apart, uh, who are so important to this particular narrative. It's kind of interesting that the name Haran means crossroads. Not real common for us today to uh, name our children in such a manner. You know, name your child intersection. You know, <laughs> or freeway, turnpike. Uh, probably not. But uh, the question might be, uh, did Terah name his son 
for a famous city that he had a particular liking for. I, who knows? Name him Heron. Now, some would argue, well, no, it's the city that's named for the child. In other words, when Terah moved from Ur and he settled up in the northern part of Mesopotamia, the spot he settled, he named after his son who had died back in Ur, and so he, it was named in honor of his dead son, and so he named the place Haran. That's a possibility, except there seems to be records that exist in the libraries that they've dug up at Ur to indicate that Haran had been around for a while that the city of Haran was already a well-known crossroads of the major trade routes of that day uh, before Terah ever left Sumer. Well, whatever may be the case, the city and the sun have the same name, and we must be sure we don't mix them up. One becomes or is a very, very important city. The other, of course, is the father of some important children in the uh, biblical narrative. Fifthly, we discover in this passage that Abram marries Sari. Now, Josephus says that she, too, was a daughter of Haran. In fact, he identifies her, look at verse 29, at the end of the verse. It says in the, name, or the last half of the verse, that the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. And Josephus identifies Sari with Iscah but there is no linguistic or biblical evidence to support that idea at all. In fact, there is biblical evidence to indicate something very different from that, in fact. If you look at Genesis chapter 20, verse 12. Genesis 20, 12. Abram has gone back into the land of Canaan after having been in Egypt, and he gets himself in a lot of trouble, just as he did in Egypt with the local ruler by pretending like or saying that his wife is his sister and so the local ruler decides he wants to marry her because she's so beautiful. And then when he's call, caught up in this and, and called to account, he says in verse 12, besides she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father but not the daughter of my mother and she became my wife. So the Bible tells us, uh, according to the words of Abraham, that Sari was not Haran's daughter, but she was actually Abraham's stepsister. So they both had the same father, Terah, but a different mother. Is that wrong? Half-sister, that's right, not stepsister. Half-sister. Uh, that's pretty close relationship, is it not? It's kind of interesting that no reason nor is any condemnation given in Scripture for Nahor marrying his niece, nor Abraham marrying his half-sister. There's, there's nothing said here about that. In fact, this family will continue to intramarry. And intramarriage will be so prominent in this family that Isaac... Jacob and eight of Jacob's sons will have the same family on both sides. In other words, it's the same family on father and mother's side. That's a little strange to us today as we think about that, but that was the case for these individuals. This association, of course, will eventually break down. It will break down partly because the family of Nahor, into whom 
uh, Isaac and Jacob will marry, the family of Nahor become more and more associated and, and, and they merge with the Aramaeans amongst whom they live. And the Arameans, of course, become major enemies of Israel, ultimately. A sixth, a sixth item of information that we discover here was that Sarai was childless. Now, to us today, we say, well, what's the point of making a big deal about that? A lot of people are. Well, that's true. But in that society, that was a great stigma. Barrenness was one of the greatest stigmas that, in practice, was the greatest stigma of all that could fall upon a woman. A woman was supposed to have issue, to bring forth children, particularly sons, into the world. And to not have a son placed her in a position where she would be ridiculed by others. And, of course, we know exactly that happens, does it not, when Abraham later... Uh, marries Hagar, and uh, she and her son ridicule Sarah. But this childlessness will play a very large role in the events which soon follow to what we're reading now, and will be the great test of faith for Abraham and for Sarah. The fact that God will promise them a son, and so many years will go by without a son or without a child at all, their, their faith will be greatly tested. And what's interesting is we read in the Scripture that uh, Sarah finally decides that God's waiting too long, and so she gives Hagar, her handmaid, to Abraham so that she, uh, you know, children can be raised up this way. She can become a surrogate mother, so to speak. And yet the Scripture later in the New Testament tells us that Abraham never stopped believing God for his son. We think... Uh, <laughs> And, of course, it says things about Lot, too. Lot goes off and lives in a rotten place and, and uh, has his daughter marry rotten men, and yet the Scripture tells us that he was a righteous man. So we have to understand, I guess, something more broadly than what we understand just from some of the statements that are made here in Genesis. Seventhly, we discover that Terah rooted out his family from Ur and moved them to Haran. Now, that's a journey of about 600 miles, traveling to the northwest, up through Mesopotamia, and up the Bilic River, about 60 miles from its, uh, from its confluence with the Euphrates, to the city of Haran. Haran, as I said before, was a major trade route, right on the crossroads of the caravan routes of that particular day. The routes that went from Sumer up to the top of Mesopotamia, of, uh, Mesopotamia yes, Tigris-Euphrates Valley, and then it looped over down the uh, west side through Canaan and into Egypt, and then, of course, went upward into Asia Minor and across the other way over into what ultimately became Iran. So this was a city that was well-known, and the route from Ur to Haran would have been heavily traveled. It wasn't like he was setting out uh, into some foreign place, cutting his way through the jungle or something. But it's very interesting that we're told in Scripture only that Abram, Sarai, and Lot went with Terah. In other words, they're the only ones listed as having traveled with Terah. 
But from the context and from our knowledge of the time, it's very unlikely that that was all that went with Terah. He probably brought a whole household of people along. Probably many, many servants traveled uh, with Terah uh, up through this area and settled in Haran. Probably a great caravan of camels uh, made the journey across that particular area. It's very difficult to underplay the role of pack animals here. Now, there's some question as to when the camel becomes uh, a major means of conveyance, but certainly horses and, and donkeys and camels are, are very significant in traveling these trade routes of that particular day and carrying the burdens as these people journeyed. Now, what about Nahor? We know Haran couldn't go to Haran because Haran was already dead. He died in Ur, Scripture tells us. But what about Nahor? Did Nahor go? Well, later on, Abram's children marry into Nahor's family. So somehow his family had to get there. So did Nahor ever get there? Well, we can't know for sure. But uh, there is a passage in the 29th chapter of Genesis that indicates that at least his family was there. Uh, Genesis 29, verses 4 and 5. This is Jacob going out to uh, meet Rachel. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to, him, to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. Laban, the son of Nahor. How did Laban get to Haran? Well, it's very possible that after the whole family had moved, Nahor got lonesome and moved his family also up to Haran. Scripture doesn't say. But certainly his children, or at least his son Laban, made the journey and was living in Haran. I don't think Nahor would have traveled with Terah or that would have been specifically stated but certainly he or his family came later. Now, it's very unlikely that as Nahor made the journey, uh, that as Terah made the journey, that he had any desire or inkling to go to Canaan himself. Now, we read there in, in the passage, in verse 31 of chapter 11, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran and his, his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. Now, why does it say that? I don't believe that Terah had any plan to go to Canaan. But Moses knew that that was the ultimate goal. And so Moses is summarizing the whole thing here in this particular verse under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, of course, and he's just summarizing the whole trip, but it's not Terah's intent, I don't believe, to go to Canaan. Well, let me read a, a verse or two from Joshua. Joshua 24, verse 2. This is just before Joshua makes that famous declaration, you know, if serve whom you will, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And, and he builds the background for that. And in Joshua 24, verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river. Whenever you see beyond the river, 
that river is the Euphrates. Namely, Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Terah was an idolater. And that idolatry was not expunged from the family. Because later on, remember, when uh, Jacob is taking Rachel and, and all that he had gathered there in Paden Aram, and he's traveling back to Canaan, why, uh, Rachel had swiped her father's gods, <laughs> and you know, household gods, and stuck them in a basket and trotted off with them. This gave Laban the opportunity to chase after Jacob and to, to threaten him. But God intervened, of course, as, as we know. So it seems that Laban continued to be somewhat of a polytheist, carrying over from his uh, grandfather, Terah. And so it's very unlikely that Terah at all saw God, heard from God, was changed, but he made this journey because Abraham, his son, apparently did see God, heard from God, and said to his father, let's go. And how he convinced his father, or how his father became convinced he ought to make the journey, Scripture does not say. But Scripture does tell us that it was Abraham who heard from God in Ur. You remember as Stephen faced the Sanhedrin, and as he made his defense, Stephen gives one of the greatest sermons on the history of redemption. And in Acts chapter 7, we read these words from the mouth of Stephen, verses 2 through 4. Acts 7, 2. And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Depart from your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God removed him into this country in which you are now living. It seems Stephen understands, as he makes this sermon here, that Abraham somehow saw God while he was still living in Ur of the Chaldees. Not Terah, Abraham. And that Abraham, therefore, urged the move. And however uh, it was that Terah felt that was okay to make the move, whether you know, Terah was already in his son's care, or, or whether Terah didn't really care where he lived, or whether Terah said, well, yeah, business might be better up there. Who knows what he did for a living? The, the implication of many historians was that Abraham was a herder and a caravanser. Uh, that is, he was a leader of caravans. And so it could have been that that was what his father did. Maybe his father was a major merchant of some sort and felt that Haran might actually be a better place to be than Ur. Now, history could easily intervene here. What we don't know, of course, is the exact timing of when this move takes place. It's believed to have taken place in the 19th century, uh, the 20th century B.C., the 1900s. We know that the city of Ur was overrun by alien peoples in that century. 
In fact, it was probably uh, conquered around 1950-1960 BC. Did that occur before or after Abraham and Terah moved to Haran? In other words, did they move? Did Terah feel it was okay to move because, hey, it's all shot here now. The enemy is overrun. Let's get out of here. Or they knew the enemy was coming, and they knew that the city was in decline, and they decided to leave, or did it have anything to do with the politics at all? We don't know that. But it could have been that the threatening enemies caused Terah to feel that this isn't a safe place to be, and Abraham says, let's go, so why not? Let's go. And so they moved up to Haran. These, these are possible scenarios here as far as what happened. But it seems quite clear that it is not Terah's intention to go to Canaan, and it is not Terah's hearing from God that brings the move. It's Abraham's vision of God. And lastly, this passage tells us in Genesis 11 that Terah died in Haran at the age of 205. Now, he lived on in Haran. It's very hard to work all of this together. Because Stephen here tells us in the fourth verse of, of Acts, you don't have to turn back to it again if you move, but he says in there that he departed from Cal and settled in Haran from there. After his father died, God removed him into this country. And yet when you put all the time together, uh, it, it doesn't seem like that could be. Because if Abraham was 75, uh, when he left uh, Haran and his father was 70 when Abram was born, that only been 145, which leaves 60 years that are hard to account for. So either the only thing we can say is that it was, Terah was 70 before the first of the three sons was born and there was a large gap between the sons and Abram was the last one born. And, and was born when Terah was 130, I mean, it would seem, in order to, to reconcile all this together. Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look at the first nine verses here of the 12th chapter of Genesis. This begins to tell us the story of the call of Abraham, of this great man of faith, and the one who becomes the father of the nation that would give birth to the Messiah. What is so important to us, as we'll read a little bit later in the New Testament, you and I, as true believers in the Word of God, are spiritually children of Abraham. So, these events are very, very important to us. Again, the 20th century B.C. is the background for the 12th chapter of Genesis. The Sumerians, Sumerian civilization has been overrun. The Elamites from the east and the Amorites from the west have overrun the Sumerian civilization. Ur has been relegated to a captured city. It will survive maybe another two to three hundred years before it will be destroyed by the son of Hammurabi, the great Babylonian king. His son, because Ur will rebel against his son, his son will destroy that city 
And from that point on, we don't know what happened to Ur, except that it seems to have disappeared from the pages of history, and today Ur is a ruin. A later king of Babylon will try to rebuild it, Nabonidus, but he has lots of troubles of his own, uh, enemies encroaching upon his land, and so he doesn't get very far, sort of like our current leader in Iraq today, who before all the trouble broke out was trying to rebuild Babylon. And, and so today Ur can be visited, but Ur is, is just a ruin. And you can see the ruins of the ancient ziggurat and, and the ruins of many of the houses and buildings that existed there. Remember, the construction was not of stone, which would have survived in, in better fashion as the stone structures have survived in Egypt. The structures were not of wood. Of course, if they had been, there would be almost nothing left. The structures were made out of kiln-dried mud bricks. And as a result, over the centuries, they've survived to a certain extent. But the heat and the cool, the heat and the cool, the constant contraction and expansion, the rain and all have worn it down so that you have kind of a, uh, a muddy ruin left over there at Ur. So as Abraham will be leaving Haran to come south into Canaan. The situation has changed behind him. Babylon will now arise. In the place of the great Sumerian state will arise the ancient state of Amorite Babylonia. On the other side of the Fertile Crescent, in the direction in which he's heading, there has arisen uh, the middle of the three great kingdoms of ancient Egypt the so-called Middle Kingdom. And Egypt is on the rise, and her glory and her power are being restored, and her wealth. And so Abraham is, is moving and will move in the direction of Egypt. In between are a bunch of small states. And these states really are probably nothing more than tribal confederations. They are not great kingdoms of any sort. So you have a great empire on one side, another empire on the other side, and in between all these petty little states. And that's where Abraham is at this particular time in the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis. Probably Canaan was under the hegemony of Egypt. Not direct rule, because there's no indication as we read through here of, of direct Egyptian influence here, but the uh, implication is that these tribal confederations owe allegiance or at least tribute probably to Egypt at this particular time. I mean, that's probably why Abraham went there, too. Remember when there was a, a drought there, instead of going back to Paden Aram, where his family was and where he had lived for a while, he goes on into Egypt because that was the great power of, of that particular part of the world at that time. Now, who is Abram? Who is this man? We know from the book of Genesis that he is called Abraham the Hebrew. And certainly the scripture makes it very clear to us that the Hebrew nation was fathered by this man. But while he was living in Ur of the Chaldees, was he known as Abraham of Eber, from which we believe the term Hebrew came? Well, we have, we have really no idea about that. Ur was a pagan place. 
And how it was that Abraham came to know the God of Israel in such a pagan environment, we don't know, but God is able to do anything. And he's able to reach right down in the midst of the pit and rescue one. And we, of course, have probably known that more closely ourselves. We know from the passage we read that he was a descendant of Arpachshad. And we also believe that other descendants of Arpachshad were uh, formed the great nation of the Akkadians. And the Akkadians at one time dominated Mesopotamia from the city of Akkad, which is yet to be found, its ruins. But it's well recorded in history. So it's very possible that Abram in some way was related to that great Akkadian people, and there were many Semitic peoples living in Sumer at the particular time that Abram left. During the third dynasty of Ur, which was from about, oh, 2080, 2050, somewhere around there to around 1950 B.C., there were probably not only Akkadians, but Chaldeans and Amorites, all living within Sumer, who were Semitic peoples related to Shem, descendants from Shem, as was Abraham. Now, where was Haran? Well, you can look at your map and see where Haran was. But what region was it in? It was in the land of the Arameans. Now, there's a little bit of disagreement about this. We know that one of the descendants of, our, of uh, Shem was Aram. And certainly the Arameans are descended from him. Others also try to indicate that somehow these people were more closely related to the Amorites. But Terah moved his family into the land of the Arameans. So he moved his family into a land that was dominated by his distant cousins, several times removed, but nevertheless relatives. And what is very interesting is that the descendants of Terah become, other than Abraham, but the descendants of Nahor become known as Arameans. How come? Because not only of cultural immersion, immersion but of intermarriage that took place between the family of Terah and the people into, which, into whose society they moved. Let me read a verse from Genesis 31, verse 20. Jacob is, of course, trying to get away because he has deceived Laban. And so it says in verse 20, And Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he was fleeing. Laban the Aramean. So Laban, who is apparently the grandson of Terah, is already called an Aramean. Then, much more interesting than that is Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 5. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, but there, there, but there he became a great, mighty, and populous nation. Who? Is this passage referring to? To Jacob. Why could Jacob be called an Aramean? 
Well, because his mother was Rebekah, sister of Laban, and his wife was Rachel, daughter of Laban, the Aramean. And so by blood, he's linked to the Aramean people that lived in the area of Haran. Does the scripture tell us that that area is called Aram? Genesis 25, verse 20. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paden Aram, sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Of Paden Aram, which means the field of Aram. It was also known in ancient history as Aram Naharim, Aram between the rivers. Let's read the first three verses of Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As you move from the 11th chapter of Genesis to the 12th chapter of Genesis, the scene shifts from the broad picture of the passing of generations to focus in on, the, on a major crisis in the life of one man. I mean, some people just pass with only their name listed. And we're just told that they were 30 years old and then they had the next kid, and he was 30 years old and he had the next... I mean, that's all we know about them. And so from this flow of, of, of families and of generations, we now turn and look at a single event in the life of a single man. I mean, the, the, the change from 11 to 12 is, is, is dramatic. We are given no preparation, really, for this sudden declaration of the family through whom would come Messiah. No, there, there's no way of, of looking at chapter 11 and saying, oh, it's very clear to tell that this is uh, leading up to Messiah. Don't know that at all from reading chapter 11. But suddenly chapter 12 focuses in on this one man. Out of a pagan land comes a pagan family. And in the midst of it all, Abram hears the call of God. Just think of it a little bit in the spiritual realm. The cacophony of evil. What must it have been like to have lived in Ur of the Chaldees, where they worshipped the moon goddess, the chief goddess, moon goddess is the chief goddess, but they worshipped many other gods and goddesses. Can you just imagine the evil that existed there and the intense oppression by demonic forces? Yet God is able to punch his way right through all of that. Knock him aside and talk to Abram. Appear to Abram. Does the presence of evil stop God? Not at all. 
God is almighty. And when God finds a heart that will hear, God speaks. Now it's not that Abram prepared himself, but God prepared Abram to be a receiver, to hear. And Stephen told, as we read in that seventh chapter of Acts, Stephen says, God appeared to Abram in Ur. Whoa, how did he do that? You know, did God appear as an angel? Did God appear as he will later to Abraham as, as, as a, what appeared to be a man? Or how did he appear? We, we aren't told. It's just that he appeared and told him what to do. And Abraham would obey. The vision stayed with him. And as he moved, he was driven by that vision of God appearing and speaking and giving him a challenge and direction in his life. Certainly God said, you must leave this, this land of paganism and idolatry and go to the land to which I direct you. Now, the land to which he would be directed wouldn't exactly be a land full of godly people. But Canaan was relatively empty in comparison, very lightly populated, as opposed to this great den of iniquity there in southern Mesopotamia. After all, we are to be lights in this world, but God, it, the Scripture does not seem to, to uh, indicate that when Lot chose the plain of Sodom in which to live, that that was a good idea. This vision drove him. And of course, Moses gives us the, the, the account of, of God's words to Abram in poetic form. Very possibly that's how God exactly spoke them. And that seems to be the indication as you read these, these verses here. And as we look at these verses, I think it's important for us to note several very important things. The first is that God's call upon Abram is not reasonable. Leave, leave this wonderful metropolitan area where everything is available and go up to this other city and, and then go down into this way off distant land which you know nothing about and, and in which you know no one. In fact, leave your family. Leave everything behind and go to this land, not even knowing where you're going to go. Just that, yes, this land, but where in this land? What is the land like? He knew nothing. Oh, I'm sure he had a little general idea because he probably talked to people that were traveling back and forth along the trade routes of that day. But did he know the details? Certainly not. It, it, it wasn't reasonable to just step out because God said so without giving any tangible proof, without God saying, oh, look, I've got this group of believers down there who are waiting for you to come and lead them, and I've got this house all ready for you over here, and everything's set up for you. That's how we usually move today, right? We don't normally just pack up and say, I'm going to move to Topeka and arrive in Topeka and say, well, here I am, now what? You know. Uh, we usually want everything prepared ahead of time. We sell our house here, we buy a house there, we find a church there, all of these things. But no, Abraham is just to step out in the Word of God and go and leave it all behind. 
The disciples felt a little bit this way. Let me read in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. This, of course, is the concept of total commitment to God above and beyond everything and everyone else. This, this is what Jesus was saying to his disciples. And in effect, this is what Jesus said to Abraham. You must leave it all and step out in faith and go to a land to which I am calling you. 19th chapter of uh, Matthew. The disciples make a point about this, beginning at verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? But I mean, that could be Abraham's words too. He's leaving Haram now. He's headed off down towards Canaan. God, I'm following you, but what's in it for me? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who fo have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms for my name's sake, shall receive many times as much, and shall inherit eternal life. Abraham didn't have this verse, of course, to go upon. Abraham didn't have any scripture to go upon. Moses hadn't been born yet to write the first five books of scripture. So he was simply going on the fact that God appeared to him and told him what to do, and he believed him. And he stepped out in faith, not knowing where he was going specifically, and not knowing what was in it for him, but believing, as we'll read a little bit later in Hebrews, that it would ultimately result in eternal life. So God's call was not, from the human point of view, reasonable. It was absurd. Why, why would you, you know, people around him said, Abraham, you're nuts. I mean, just because you think God told you to do something, who's this God anyway? And, and I mean, after all, we worship the moon God here. Who's this God you're talking about? Where's his image? And you're going to go off down the, uh, the trade route over there to the west. I mean, it's pretty barbaric over there. And uh, leave all the security and family behind. I mean, he probably didn't have a lot of encouragement. Probably not from his family either, except Lot. Lot decided to go with him. We don't even know why. But Abraham stepped out anyway. But although God's call didn't seem to be reasonable, God's call had a definite goal. In other words, God didn't just send him out into nirvana. God didn't just make some kind of a nebulous statement. I want you to go somewhere. Just start going, and, and, and when you get a ways, I'll start direct. No, he said, I want you to go that away. And I want you to go to Canaan. As I said before, he probably knew very little about Canaan. He didn't know anybody in Canaan, had no family in Canaan. 
But God's call was to a definite place in his, in, in his circumstance. He was giving up, however, his old land for the new. God didn't just set him adrift. God said, there is where I want you to go. But of course, where in the land should he go? Well, he wasn't quite sure about that. And as we read on through the 12th chapter, we find he kind of hopscotched from one place to the next, generally trending south, until he ended up actually in Egypt, which wasn't to the place to which God had called him. And he had to kind of be sent back out of there, uh, back into the land of Canaan. He may not have known much about his new land, but he knew that God was directing him to a specific place to live his life for him. I think as God's people, we need to extract from this truth for our own lives and make sure that we're listening to God's voice. There are a lot of voices out there you are well aware of, I'm sure. A lot of voices telling us to do this, that, and the other thing. But God's voice is not always the loudest. We're all familiar with Elijah's story on the mountain. God wasn't in the fire, the earthquake, the great wind. God's voice was the still, small voice. And sometimes if we aren't still, you know, as, as God told Moses, be still and know that I am God, and as he spoke to the people. Sometimes if we're not still, we don't hear that still small voice and we are running around bouncing off the walls because we're hearing other voices. It's our responsibility to make sure we know that it's God's voice who's saying do this or to do that, to make this jo job change or this church change or commit yourself to this task in the church or get married if, or, you know, marry this person or whatever it happens to be. We may need to be sure we're hearing God's voice and not one of the many other voices out there. And then when we know it's God's voice, we can step out in faith as Abraham did. And as he is so credited in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, and we'll end with these verses. Verse 8, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going, meaning specifically. He knew he was going to Canaan, but, but where in Canaan? I mean, it's a small land in, in terms of world geography, but it's a big place to have to try to find your way to a specific spot. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was looking for, if you will, sort of the new Jerusalem. He was looking for that place that God had promised. As Jesus said to his disciples, and ultimately you inherit eternal life. And this was his goal, primitive as it might have been compared to our more sophisticated understanding because we have the whole of Scripture before us. But it was the faith in his heart that brought him commendation from God. As the Scripture tells us, it is the faith that generated the status of righteousness in the case of Noah, and so it is with Abraham. And it's our faith that brings us into the status of righteousness today, too.